You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So I am the oldest of three children in my family, by quite a lot actually. I'm six years older than my brother and nine years older than my sister. And I'm not sure how much stock you put into uh, birth order psychology, the idea that personality traits are kind of determined by where you fit into a family. So oldest children tend to have certain personality traits, middle children will have certain personality traits, youngest children will have personality traits. Um, There's some things to it, but I think that it doesn't always capture the complexity of, of human beings. But I did fit a lot of the stereotypes of the oldest child. Um, I was very determined to achieve. I was very conscientious. I always wanted to do what is right. And I hated getting into trouble. Um, I naturally gravitated towards following the rules. And I liked to make sure that everyone else around me was following the rules too. Um, On more than one occasion, my mom in particular had to remind me that she was in fact the parent to my younger siblings not me, and that if she's standing right there, I don't have to be the one to correct them to make sure they're following the rules. They did not necessarily share my same inclination as a rule follower. Um, Which is not to say that I was the perfect model of obedience all the time. Um, In fact, uh, while I rarely openly rebelled, I had very much a tendency to get distracted um, and to... um, really only invest myself in a task if I thought it was important. Uh, Probably the best example of this may have been my relationship with cleaning my room. Um, Mowing the lawn would be up there as well, but cleaning the room, my room. um, It wasn't uncommon for me to be asked to go clean my room. I wouldn't protest. I knew that the room needed to be cleaned. I agreed that it needed to be cleaned. Um, I would go into my room, I'd start cleaning, and I'd probably like find a book that I hadn't read for a while underneath my bed. And An hour later, or two hours later, my parents would come in, and I would be sitting in the middle of that messy room with a book, perfectly content, not really trying to openly rebel, but also not getting done what I was asked to get done. Um, So basically, I was a lot like the second son in the parable that Jesus told to the Pharisees, where I said I was asked to go do something, and I said, yes, I will go, but then I didn't actually get it done. Because as it turns out, when we think about what obedience looks like for, in relationship to God, that a propensity for following the rules isn't really what makes for an obedient son. This may sound like a preposterous statement. I mean, isn't being obedient all about following the rules? And, uh, but consider who Jesus was speaking to when he told the parable. Not in our reading from the gospel today, but outside of it, in the, in the context near it. In verse 23... It mentions that Jesus was speaking to the chief priests and the elders. And later on in the same chapter, in verse 45, when, it, when he finishes up his conversation, it mentions the Pharisees as well. So these were the premier rule followers of Jewish society. The Pharisees in particular were hold, held people to account for the law of following the rules. They, um, they taught that Jewish people needed to follow God's laws so that God would provide a savior in response to their obedience. So they saw obedience as perhaps the highest virtue that you could possibly have, obedience to Torah, obedience to the law, because they looked for that as a way for God then to to come and save them 
from their situation under Roman occupation. They were looking for a savior. And they were not just a people filled with empty words. This isn't just something that they preached and didn't practice. They were good at following the rules. In, in, uh, when Paul was recounting his reasons to have confidence in the flesh in Philippians 3, which of course he discarded and said no one should have confidence in the flesh. But he said, if anyone was, it would be me. And he says, I was a Pharisee and faultless with regard to righteousness under the law. Which is a pretty bold claim by Paul. Um, he's not afraid of making bold claims, for sure. Even if we consider that all, not all of the Pharisees perhaps lived up to Paul's lofty standard, where they could claim to be faultless with regard to righteousness under the law, there's the first son to consider in the parable. Despite his initial protest to his father, where he said, I'm not going to go, he actually did obey. He went to the vineyard, and he worked as his father had asked him to. It kind of gives us a, a further confirmation that in this parable, Jesus is not condemning the Pharisees for their inability to keep the law. The problem was not that the bar was set too high or that they stumbled trying to get over it. A lot of the times when we think of the relationship between the law and trying to follow the law, this is what we primarily think of as our reason for disobedience, is we know that all fall short. We know that all are disobedient. All have sinned so that all might be shown mercy. And so we think of it primarily as an issue of our obedience is just impossible. But in this parable that Jesus told, the second son obeyed. The second son listened to the father, ultimately. And the people who were represented, or the first son, I'm sorry, uh, the people who were represented by that first son are the tax collectors and the prostitutes, not exactly paragons of law-keeping. The obedience that the father demands is not just a matter of following the rules, which is really annoying to people like me who like rules. Um, it's something more, though. It's looking past that surface level of can you follow the rules. And what the Jewish leaders were missing was a position of the heart. The, the specific instance of disobedience that Jesus points to in the way that they did not listen to their father was in the appearance of John the Baptist who came preaching a rather simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It's the same message that Jesus picked up when he went and began his public ministry. He came and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The tax collectors and the prostitutes recognized this message as God's word to them, as the voice of God speaking to them through a prophet, through the Messiah. And even though they had acted in rebellious ways in the past, they changed their mind. It's not, in the Greek, it's not quite the same word that is used for repentance, but it has some of the same connotation of I'm changing my mind, I'm turning away from the things that I had done before. And they obeyed. The chief priests and elders did not believe that John's message was from God. And even when they saw the fruit that it bore among the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they didn't think that the message was for them. What the Jewish leaders failed to see is that the, before we can obey, the first thing that is required for obedience is humility. And that's harder to do when we're interacting with a person, a voice that is speaking to us, than it is with a set of rules. Because rules become something that we can manipulate, something we can control. They give us a sense of power because we can work within the rules to get advantage for ourselves. We can um, 
have our, our ego be inflated by the rules because we're better at keeping rules than other people. But when we're obedient to a voice, when we're obeying the voice of God, when we're obeying the voice of Jesus, it requires submitting ourselves to a person, not just a set of rules. It involves listening for the voice of God, trusting that his commands are good, and then submitting our will to his. So I'm going to say that again. I think that obedience involves listening for the voice of God, trusting that his commands are good, and submitting our will to his. Let's look at each of those three steps in turn. First, it requires listening to the voice of God. And as a pastor up here preaching, I'm sure that it's not going to come as a surprise to you if I say that one of the primary ways that we listen for the voice of God is that we spend time in Scripture. We turn to his word and we, we dwell in it. We eat it. We internalize what it says to us. But it also is important when we think about this that it's, it matters a lot how we engage Scripture. Because... If we engage scripture as a search for information, a search for which rules there are to follow, what am I supposed to do next? It's just a piece of knowledge that we're going to gain. Then we end up using it like that list of rules. And it's very easy to do so because in our knowledge, I mean, in our culture, in our, in our era that we live in, there is so much information that we're taking in. And so much of what we read, so much of what we watch, so much of what we listen to is primarily about gaining information. Whether you're listening to news on the radio or watching television or going online, we want to find out what's happening so that I can decide how to obey, or not how to obey, how to act, what I want to do next. When we're looking for just a, we end up um, engaging scripture in that same way. We do it a great injustice. Eugene Peterson wrote in his book, Working the Angles, the primary reason for a book is to put a writer into relation with the readers so that we can listen to his or her stories and find ourselves in them, listen to his or her songs and sing along with them, listen to his or her arguments and argue with them, listen to his or her answers and question them. The scriptures are almost entirely this kind of book. If we read them impersonally with an information-gathering mind, we misread them. In other words, we have to understand that God speaks to us through his word. When we sit down to read scripture, we are entering into a posture of listening for what God has to say to us, specifically, to us. He's continually active through his spirit, speaking to us through his word. This is the beginning of a conversation with God, not just a long written document that is, is just a guide for how to live and a good idea for how we what we should do. It's not even just a document that shows us how to attain salvation. It's a document that puts us in relationship with God because he inspired the writing of his word through his spirit and he continues to speak through it through his spirit that he has granted to us as followers of Christ. This is important. We sit under the word not just because it is an authoritative document but because it is the voice of God speaking to us. And if we engage it in that way, and if we learn to listen for what God is saying to us in that, then we are on the path to true obedience. Because we are prepared then, we begin to, to get to the point where we can submit our wills to what God is telling us, specifically, 
through his scripture, through his word. But it's not just a matter of listening to his voice. That's important. The Pharisees missed the voice of God because they had been so caught up in Torah that they had, had not understood that God was still speaking to them through the prophets. But we also have to require trusting that God's word is good. Our response to God's voice should be the same as the author of the psalm we read together today. It began, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. If we don't trust that what God is telling us, what we are engaging is good, if we engage the voice of God with a posture of suspicion, that we are never going to actively obey. So, if you got an email in your account, to, it popped up today, and it looked like it came from your bank, and it tells you that they want you to send them your username and password in response to the email, um, would you do that? I, I hope not. Just a little quick lesson to internet safety. Don't send your username and password to anybody over email, ever. Um, so sending long information over email is a profoundly bad idea. And you should be rightfully suspicious of anyone who asks you to do so. But if you engage scripture with a uncertainty that God is good, and this is one of the things that I think troubles us in a world that is so broken at times. Do we really believe that God is good? If we engage scripture, if we listen to his voice, and we always are questioning his goodness, then we, can ask, we end up asking ourselves, do I really want to obey this? And it ends up being setting my judgment against God. This is part of where God rebuked Job in, at the end of the book of Job, after Job had sat under suffering for a long time, and, he, and Job wanted to put God on trial, and God flipped it around and said, no, who are you to test me? I am good. I have created everything. I am mighty. And if we don't choose to submit to the voice of God, if we don't choose to believe that he's good, we're going to do the same sort of things that happened when... Um, when we have a person who tells us something that we're not certain if it's good, and we're just going to either delay obedience, we're going to sit in judgment over it, we're going to not actively obey. Now, this doesn't mean that we entirely turn off our minds and, and that we don't use our reason as we're engaging with Scripture. We are trying to understand what God is asking us to do. And we can engage reason with that, and we can try to understand what how he's leading us in obedience, but sometimes God leads us into places that we would not understand or know ourselves. And we have to trust his goodness if we are to follow him and obey through those places. Sometimes God leads us on a path that, that walks through suffering. Sometimes God draws us into suffering for the sake of obedience. Certainly that was the case with Jesus. Obedience for him meant going obedience to even to death. And he had to trust the Father's word, trust the Father's will, that what he was asking him was good. And when we do that, when we trust the Father's word, then we can also, we have to submit to it. It's one thing to know what God is asking, is to listen to his voice and to actually hear his word spoken to us through the scriptures um, and, and as we engage with him through prayer, responding to him. It's another thing to trust that he is good and to know what is good for us to do. But it's yet another thing still to actually do it. We all see this play out time and time again. You know, I know that I should exercise every single day, but sometimes I'd rather just sit on the couch and have a snack instead. I know that I should go to bed right now so that I can get a good night of sleep, but I want to stay up a little bit later, and I'm just going to put that off for a little bit longer. 
in little ways like this where our health is involved, we all have things that we know what is good and fail to do it. But it's also true of in many other ways, and it certainly is true of Scripture, where we know that we are called to forgive, but I want to hold on to that grudge a little bit longer. I know that I should give generously, but I'm afraid, and I want to cling to my resources for myself because I'm not really sure that God is going to provide. When we hear the voice of God giving us commands, when we hear him telling us what to do, we have to obey, we have to submit our will to his. It's easier said than done. In fact, we come back to that first point that we recognize that we are all sinners still. We can't perfectly submit our will to the Father. Fortunately, he's given us the Holy Spirit to be a helper for us. That as we pray, as we engage with God over the commands that he has given us, as we speak to him and engage in conversation, we can learn and be trained through the power of the Holy Spirit to submit our will to his and to walk in greater and greater and greater obedience to him. Jesus, of course, is the perfect model of the obedient son. When we, the passage that was read today um, was from Philippians chapter 2. The reference in the, in the bulletin today is wrong. I'm sorry about that. Um, but it points to the fact that Jesus' obedience sprang from his humility. That even though that he was someone who was, even though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. Um, instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And, and there's a lot of theological ink that has been spilled about what it means that Jesus emptied himself, but I think that the primary point is actually explained when it says that he took on the form of a servant. Rather than taking on the form and coming down as a glorious conquering Lord, he came as a servant because he came in humility. And he humbled himself to obedience, even obedience that led to death on a cross. This is what we are called to as what it looks like to live in obedience to the Father. We have to first humble ourselves to understand that we are servants of God that we stand under his word, that we stand under his judgments, and that when he calls us to obedience, we submit our wills in humility and obey. And when we do, it's good. The Pharisees, or the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who submitted themselves to the will of God, who repented and turned, were probably afraid of what they were giving up. They'd been already been cast out from Jewish society, and they had no real necessarily knowledge that they were going to be reaccepted back into society, and they had, were giving up the one thing perhaps that they had some control over, some security in the way that they could engage their financial future and the ways that they could fend for themselves. And instead, they submitted to the word of God that said to repent. And they found themselves restored to life that they thought was completely unavailable to them. When Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, it points out in that same Philippians reading that he was highly exalted above every name, so that, so that at, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he obeyed the Father, and what he received was far greater than what he gave up, because our Father is good. He doesn't call us to obedience as a way of just breaking our wills and, and turning us into something that is, is to take away from us. 
He calls us to obedience to give us true life because He is the source of life. So, I ask you today to pause and, and listen to the voice of the Father. What act of obedience is He calling you to right now? As you engage scriptures, ask that question. What act of obedience is God calling you to? Is it the same word that he spoke through John? Is there something in your life that you need to repent? That to turn away from? To confess your sin? And to turn away? Is it something still from one of the last two sermons that we've looked at where we're called to forgiveness? We're called to love our enemies. We're called to act out of grace. What do we have to give up to do that? To obey the word of God? It might be something else that he's calling you to today. But trust, listen to his voice. Trust that his commands are good. And submit your, your will to him in a way that will lead you to true and everlasting life. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. To learn more about us, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.